You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to this ODI webinar on development finance institutions and the pandemic response, in which we will focus today on how DFIs are investing in healthcare. This is the second of three webinars and is organised in partnership with the CDC Group, the UK's development finance institution, Proparco and DEG, the French and German equivalents, and EDFI, the Association of European Development Finance Institutions. We're delighted today to have such a large audience joining us with over 130 participants from Africa, America, Asia, etc. My name is Sam Attridge and I'm a Senior Research Fellow here at ODI and I will chair our discussion today. So we at ODI recently reviewed the portfolios of eight development finance institutions to understand more about their investment in the healthcare sector. From our analysis, we found that DFI investment is relatively low and is largely directed towards infrastructure and pharmaceuticals in upper middle income and lower middle income countries with a significant concentration, in particular in Turkey and India. However, we also found that this kind of pattern of investment is not necessarily inevitable. And we found lots of interesting examples of high risk taking and innovative approaches, such as the use of volume and first loss guarantees, cross subsidization models, development impact bonds and pooled investment vehicles. So informed by this research today, we shall start by discussing the immediate DFI response in healthcare and we'll get the panelists' perspectives on the current state of DFI investment in this sector. We shall then look forward and explore whether these patterns are actually inevitable or can they change, what innovation may be required and how complementary is DFI investment to public investment in health. But before I introduce our stellar panel today, I'd just like to highlight a few housekeeping rules. We very much encourage questions to our panel. If you have any, please enter them in the box below this video or audio stream. Additionally, please use the hashtag investing to save lives or hashtag DFIs to tweet your questions and comments about this event. You can also find us at ODIDev and at CDC Group. Please note also that our panelist from Proparco, Claudia, has to leave us at 1.45. So if you have any specific questions you'd like her to answer, please raise these and I will ensure that she answers those before she leaves. So without further ado, I'm thrilled to introduce our distinguished panel today. And in no particular order, we have Claudia Martinez Ochoa, who is a senior investment officer in manufacturing, agribusiness and services at Proparco, the French Development Finance Institution, Claudia has been an investment officer at Proparco for five years and prior to that was at the Inter-American Inter Development Bank as an investment officer focused on bottom of pyramid transactions, including healthcare. Next, we have Al Karim Haj, who is the vice president and chief financial officer of the Aga Khan University, which operates health services and academic programs in six countries. Al Karim is also the chair of the Aga Khan Development Network 
and the Health Purchase Network Committee that consists of 21 hospitals, 750 medical centres in 12 countries treating 9 million patients annually. And finally, we have Michael Anderson, who is the Chief Executive Officer of MedAccess, a UK-based social finance company with a pioneering mission to make global healthcare accessible for everyone. He has over 30 years international development experience and has held many prominent positions, including as the Chief Executive Officer of the Children Investment Fund Foundation, the Director General of DFID, and has been the UK's Prime Minister's Special Envoy on International Development. So welcome panel. Let's first spend some time discussing the current state of DFI investment and the response to the pandemic. So I'm going to uh, turn the floor to Claudia. So Claudia, Proparco is one of the few DFIs who um, make investment in the healthcare sector. Um, what has been the impact of the crisis on your healthcare clients and how have they responded? Um, and how has Proparco actually supported your, the, these clients in that response? Hi, hi to everybody. Um, okay, so we've seen uh, two basic impacts on our clients. One was liquidity problems as a result of the crisis, and the other was insufficient protect, protective personal equipment for hospitals and clinics. So first I'll touch on liquidity issues uh, between hospitals and clinics and pharma. So hospitals and clinics were saw a drastic reduction in revenue and levels of activity as countries across the world uh, imposed lockdown measures and non-urgent operations were canceled either by law by patients or by hospitals themselves uh, as they were trying desperately to free up beds to receive uh, COVID patients. And in many countries, governments actually imposed a quota on private hospitals to ensure that a certain number of ICU beds remained available at all times to receive COVID patients, but were not remunerated for those beds. So that also hurts uh, their bottom line. On the pharma side, the, the greatest concern was supply chain uh, disruptions. So pharma producers across the world import about 80% of what we call active principal ingredients from China. That is the main raw materials needed to produce pharmaceuticals. And when China went into lockdown in January, our small pharma producers alerted us to the fact that they had limited inventory of certain APIs. And if that the Chinese uh, economy and exports did not open up by April, they would run out. I would not be able to produce um, basic uh, things like paracetamol. And this affected not just small producers, but large producers as well, as we saw many countries, even in Europe, um, at some point risking having shortages of paracetamol and other basic uh, medicines. So that was on the, on the supply chain. Um, additionally, governments in emerging markets started redirecting their purchases uh, focusing on COVID-related medicine and putting aside other essential medicines like anti-malaria treatments and vaccines, which hurt our pharma producers uh, focus, for example, in Africa on, on essential medicines and generics. And they had to scramble and try to find new APIs and new, new distributors to increase their portfolio and be able to, to, to provide these um, to uh, governments but that also hurt obviously their, their bottom line. And then finally, part of the disruption process in, in, in the supply chain was that Chinese exporters of APIs, when the, they restarted exporting in around April, 
they began to demand tighter payment conditions with much shorter payment delays. Uh, and at the same time, local distributors and local governments in emerging markets were having liquidity issues. And so we're asking pharma producers for longer payment delays. So pharma producers were squished between their suppliers requesting immediate payments and their clients requesting uh, longer payment delays. So that created serious uh, liquidity problems for certain for certain customers. What we did as a, uh, as a result of this uh, was to react as quickly as we could and we deployed two instruments. The first one was emergency COVID grants that we had never been able to do in such a short period of time. And for example, one of our hospitals in Central um, Asia, we gave them an emergency grant so that they could acquire protective personal equipment for their staff as their country was in short, was lacking and they desperately needed to equip their, their, their personnel. And the other instrument was uh, working capital lines, same thing, emergency working capital lines, for example, for the pharma producers. They needed to bridge the gap. As I just mentioned, all these disruptions meant that they had their capital was stuck between suppliers and clients and lower revenues. And we helped them overcome, let's say, the summer months, which were the hardest because production was lower due to social distancing, um, production lines. Pe people couldn't necessarily get to work because public transportation was disrupted in many countries, etc. Now hospitals are about 80 to 90 percent um, at capacity. In, in the country, in emerging markets. And our pharma producers are also about 80 to 90% um, production in some countries, 100% uh, capacity. So that's basically, that was basically our, the, the story and how we were able to, to react. Okay, super, showing um, some of the flexibility in Proparco's response. Just, just very quickly, if I may, um, you mentioned about the emergency COVID grants um, to help um, acquire PPE and working capital lines. Was this, you've never done that before? You've never had access to these kind of grants or kind of what's your approach on the working capital? Just just briefly, just to tell us a little bit more about that. Please. Uh, we did have access to grants before, but the process was long and uh, you had to pass uh, clients through committees and it could take up to six months. So we were ba able, basically able to shorten that into a 20-day period, working long hours by our teams, but trying to get proposals quickly to our committees. Our risk department um, rolled up their sleeves and were super responsive and helped us get answers quickly because they need to approve those grants. And from the working capital line, same thing. We we. We basically had to make the case that you had two options in front of you. Either you gave them an emergency working capital line, you crossed your fingers and you hoped that would push your client over the, the, the impasse and into better times, or unfortunately your client would go down with COVID and you would lose your investment. And obviously, at least collectively, uh, we it never crossed our mind that we would let a health provider or, or, or a health company go down because of COVID. And we decided it was best to risk more capital and, and make sure we made our argument correctly and push them over the line in, into September. And that's thankfully what occurred. Okay, wonderful, thank you. So Michael, um, as I mentioned, our recent research found, you know, I would say a relative, relatively small numbers of examples of kind of risk-taking and innovative kind of approaches by DFIs. But MedAccess was one of those kind of examples that, that we came across and were interested in. So 
Can you briefly explain to us the kind of the innovative MedAccess model and um, its response to COVID-19, please? Yeah, very happily, Sam. I just want to say at the outset that what Claudia has described sounds really familiar to me. Um, within CDC, there was a huge amount of scrambling to get grants out for emergency PPE to support companies, a lot of late night working and innovative compression of timelines. I think that's been shared around the world. Um, I, I do want to talk about what we do um, because what we do is fairly unusual. So MedAccess is a subsidiary of CDC created two and a half years ago. We have $200 million of paid in capital from CDC. We are a social finance company, um, which means that we're not looking to make a profit. We operate like a business, commercially sustainable, but we're not for profit. Our mission is to make medicines and other health products affordable and more widely accessible in low and middle income countries. So that's our core mission. And we do that through guarantee financing. Um, so guarantees are really the core financial product we offer. And in particular, we were founded especially to provide volume guarantees. The way that volume guarantees work is that uh, we are companies who have products, uh, normally products that are being sold fairly low volumes at higher prices, particularly in low and middle income countries. And we help to de-risk the movement of those companies into markets that are perceived as being riskier. Uh, we do that by providing a floor level of guaranteed sales over a period of years that we will guarantee when fail, sales fall short, we will step in and make them whole. In return for the guarantee on volumes, the company uh, commits to a price ceiling. So everyone gets the certainty of knowing there'll be a certain amount of volume and that the price will not go above a certain level. And that creates trust all around. That's the way we work. I, just to give an example of a company we've partnered with, we work partnered with a U.S. Uh, firm, uh, a diagnostic firm called Hologic, uh, partnered with them to help allow them to bring their product for HIV viral load testing into Africa uh, at a 30% price reduction from what was prevailing in the market. In the, in the first year, 2019, uh, our epidemi epidemiologists tell us that uh, an estimated 182,000 patients living with uh, HIV benefited and got better clinical outcomes because of this testing coming to market. And the you know, really great technology is, is being disseminated widely, which otherwise was not there several years ago. So that's an example of what we do. I'm saying that by way of background to our COVID response. For MedAccess, our COVID response was we worked very quickly um, to find ways to help support companies to get products into market. Um, and we ended up doing a $50 million guarantee for UNICEF, a procurement guarantee, allowing UNICEF to secure volumes from manufacturers of PPE, oxygen equipment, diagnostic tests, those volumes that would otherwise really difficult for small countries with very little uh, negotiating power to get. So UNICEF accelerated uh, procurement of those products and got them out to country. And I'm pleased to say that with backing from CDC, our parent company, we were able to provide that guarantee without any fee whatsoever. And we compressed our due diligence process to get it done very quickly. Um, and we took on more risk than we normally would. Super, thank you, um, Michael. And just reflecting if we, you know, we're six months into the pandemic, 
What kind of innovation have you observed in DFI health investment in response to the pandemic? And do you think it's enough? Or what kind of role do you think DFI should be playing? Well, I do think that the core function of DFIs in this time has been to provide counter-cyclical financing for a range of businesses and ensure those businesses are secured. The CDC, our parent company, for example, you know, they had three strands of activities. First, to preserve, to preserve the companies um, that they support, to ensure that employees are safeguarded with the right kind of equipment and they've got the right kind of capital to continue business. Um, similar in some ways to what Claudia was talking about. Second, to strengthen, to scale up uh, local liquidity, uh, trade finance, um, local finance, uh, to make sure that there's the liquidity in the market to keep um, products and services going to uh, ensure basic basic needs are met. And the third strand for CDC is to rebuild, to invest more, including in thinking about how do we create sustainable long-term uh, health systems. It seems to me that that's right. I think the challenge for DFIs is how do you invest effectively in, at, you know, really, really short time scale, how do you invest effectively in scaling up health products? Um, I have to say that the biggest risks that were taken in COVID were really taken by entities like governments, uh, the US BARDA, the Department of Health in the UK, some really big bets made uh, on innovative products and long-scale products. There were also risks taken by finance ministries who are in, willing to engage in deficit spending at an astonishing level, uh, historically unprecedented. And third, big philanthropies like uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation who are able to take really big bets. If I look to private finance, and just excluding DFIs, but I look at private capital, private capital has actually taken very little risk during COVID, little new risk. It's taken quite a lot of risk thrust upon them. But really has not, in my view, responded with the risk-taking that one might expect from private finance. And that's quite surprising, especially with, you know, interest rates being as low as they are in capital at the moment. I think for DFIs in particular, it's a more difficult uh, place to operate. But I think that there is now a real need to continue to focus on the long term. I suppose if I'm completely honest, I, you know, I'm pretty proud that we, we took ex you know, exceptional measures I think that you know many organizations have had bold initiatives, but I, I do think we haven't seen enough of the innovative approaches. We haven't seen enough of the new products, and we haven't really seen the shift to taking a lot more risk that one might have seen or might have expected in these times. Okay, super, Michael. Perhaps I think when the second part of the webinar when we look forward, we can maybe uh, probe a bit more on kind of that innovation and, and risk-taking. If I move on to um, Al-Karim, um, the Aga Khan University Hospital in Karachi has been the beneficiary of investment by a number of, of DFIs, including Proparco and, and the USDFC. Um, it's super interesting because it uses, we came across this cross-subsidization model uh, where wealthier patients uh, subsidize, pay more and subsidize uh, access by uh, poorer patients. Um, some, as we know, kind of would have an ideological view that private investment is not as good in the health sector. But your model sounds like a good model um, about the complementarity um, and access. So can you reflect on this and tell us a bit more about the DFI investment in your hospital and the cross-subsidization model, please. 
Thank you, Sam. Let me just start by saying uh, it's a pleasure to be part of this panel to discuss these important matters. I'm gonna start really by addressing the, uh, uh, the perception issue about the role of uh, private healthcare. And I respectfully uh, disagree with the notion that some have that there is no place for private institutions in healthcare. Why do I say this? I say this because governments simply cannot meet the needs of their growing populations on their own. And many of the countries we work in, in fact, in all the countries we work in, Pakistan, Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, Afghanistan, government invites private uh, sector participants. But I must point out that we are a not-for-profit institution. We are not a for-profit private institution. And so I know sometimes uh, there's a hard uh, there's a hard time some have in distinguishing the two, but uh, all of the income that we generate is used and reinvested in the countries we operate in to support indigent patients, uh, to support uh, academic programs that build critical human resources for health. And uh, if you will just forgive me for for a minute or two more, I just want to explain why this is so fundamentally important and how this fits into the way we look at investing and cross-subsidizing. Um, when His Highness the Aga Khan built the Aga Khan University and the Aga Khan University Hospital in Karachi, he did so to be an exemplar, uh, to ensure that a high quality, uh, higher education institution and healthcare organization could be established in the developing world. Why? Well, his fundamental belief is, is that um, Every human being has a right to high quality education, high quality healthcare. Being born in a marginalized setting or in a developing world gives you no less right than if you were born in an affluent family or in an affluent country. Uh, so very important, this concept of uh, social um, equity. And if I may, um, what, has, what have we done, and forgive me because this will sound a bit self-promotional, what has one private health institution be able to, has been able to do in Pakistan? We commissioned an economic impact study done by the Centennial International Group based in Washington, DC. And they looked at what the impact of the Aga Khan University and Hospital has been. Very quickly, um, AKUH, uh, after you know, dozens and dozens of interviews and focus groups and ev evaluating data, came to the following conclusions. Number one, AKU has been an exemplar for healthcare in Pakistan. It has raised the standard. It was the first joint commission international hospital. Now there are two more. The one and only uh, College of American Pathologist Laboratory in the country. Um, it has a medical school that is ranked uh, by the Shanghai rankings as the only medical school in clinical medicine uh, in Asia in the top 100 in the world. Uh, it's introduced to training in many specialties and subspecialties that have never existed in the country. Others have now emulated that. The School of Nursing and Midwifery has played a critical role in women's empowerment. It has done a, uh, it was the first institution to take nursing from an apprenticeship model to an academic model. And most of the deans of accredited nursing schools in Pakistan are actually the alumni of our School of Nursing and Midwifery. So overall, um, I hope that provides some evidence or an example of why uh, private healthcare organizations have a role to play. 
Now, with respect to the cross-subsidization model, in Pakistan, we borrowed $53.5 million from the U.S. Development Finance Corporation and the French Development Agency, AFD, and also the Aga Khan Foundation in the United States. DFC provided us 30 million, Aga Khan Foundation seven and a half, and AFD 16 million. The, the funds from um, DFC and Aga Khan Foundation were really to expand our health infrastructure, critical care beds, uh, new hospital beds, um, all operating matters to improve uh, the nature of services that we offer. Uh, in addition, the 16 million from AFD was really used uh, for infrastructure, energy efficiency, and environmental sustainability uh, investments uh, to reduce the carbon footprint. Uh, we're very grateful to our partners for that investment. Expanding the hospital allowed us to generate more income. What did we do with that income? We were able to subsidize, uh, last year we subsidized nearly 900,000 patients. Those patients who could not afford to access our healthcare were given some form of subsidy so they could access that. And then we cross-subsidized the training of doctors, nurses, and allied health professionals. Um, so insofar as uh, the model of uh, cross-subsidy, those patients that can afford to pay, they pay full economic cost. The income that's earned from that, the margins that's earned from that, goes to cross-subsidize those patients that can't afford to pay for those services. And we believe that that model is sustainable. It's been in place for uh, 35 years. It's being replicated in other hospitals that we have. Um, so overall, we, we do believe that this model has merit. It has worked for us within our group. Um, so thank you, uh, Sam. Super, thank you. It's great to, to hear on, on the ground and, and especially about that cross-subsidization um, model. Um, <clears throat> okay, I'm just wondering if there are any reflections from, from the panel on what you've heard uh, colleagues, colleagues say. We've got a couple of minutes uh, to just interact between ourselves. If, you, if, anything, if anything was flagged, which you'd like to comment on or struck you, Michael, do you, do you have something? And it's worked really well. Capital that is willing, capital investment that is willing to look for that and really think carefully how do we structure investments so that kind of explicit cross subsidization can be built in. Okay, Michael, unfortunately, I don't think uh, we, we could hear you, but maybe I'll just move on to, to Claudia, who signaled that she'd like to make a comment. Claudia, over to you. No, I would just say that, Akirma, uh, you mentioned on the importance of uh, private sector healthcare. I couldn't agree with you more. Obviously, it's um, all, also sort of self-promotion because that's what we invest in. But regardless of that, the need is so tremendous that it is impossible for one single government to provide, um, uh, you know, to cover 
to cover 100% of, of the population. Having said this, I think both are complementary, uh, and I'll, I'll touch that upon that a bit later in one of my answers, but there's models where, where there's universal health coverage and there's no issues on affordability and governments are able to cover 100% of uh, health costs through private and public providers. So I think regardless, um, it's not even a question of affordability in my mind only, um, it's also a question of actually access to infrastructure that governments don't necessarily need to be the ones building and operating hospitals. Private sector can actually do that quite well. And it's more a question of regulating the entire um, sector so that both parts are complementary and the entire population is able to have an adequate health coverage. Okay, super, Claudia. Uh, so maybe now if we just kind of um, look forward, um, Claudia, as I said earlier, in our review of DFI investment, we found that DFI investment in the health sector was relatively low or small and largely directed towards infrastructure, which you've just spoken about, and pharmaceuticals in middle-income countries. Um, is there something about this kind of subsector which makes it more attractive for DFIs such as Proparco to invest in? And can DFIs change this pattern of investment? And if so, how? Um, okay, so I would say that there's two reasons why DFIs do what we call hard asset investment. One is financial and one is developmental. So the financial reason is because our main instrument is long-term debt secured by assets. DFIs are usually not competitive with short-term instruments. We actually prefer to leave that to local banks because we do not want to crowd them out. And we see that our additionality is actually in providing access to long-term uh, capital as this is the instrument that is needed to build large infrastructure projects such as hospitals, clinics, and pharma factories across developing markets. And then the second reason is, as I said, developmental, um, which is basically the, the need, as I, as I touched upon a couple seconds before that, uh, of expanding access to health services across emerging markets. And I'm gonna give a, two concrete examples in the two sectors. So on the pharma side in Sub-Saharan Africa, 90 to 95 percent of all pharmaceuticals are imported and the number of local producers are not only few but on top of that very few of them comply with the who good manufacturing practices and so we believe that it is at the core of our mandate to support local uh, producers particularly in sub-saharan africa uh, to increase local production, but also to reduce the dependency on imports that uh, that can create sorry shortages in medicines when currencies become vo become volatile, or uh, you can see very radical devaluations, as as has been the case in Zimbabwe or Venezuela. Uh, concerning hospitals or and clinics, the story is similar is one of access. Um, there's still a severe lack of beds across emerging markets. I'm gonna give an example of one of the best in class uh, to show that even one of the best in class in, in a middle-income country faces this. So the example is Colombia, middle-income country, OECD member uh, recently, and has a fantastic healthcare system that provides universal health coverage for its population with obviously a lot of things to improve, but to give statistics back in 1990, only 10% of the population had access to healthcare and was covered. You fast forward to 2020, 95% of all Colombians uh, have universal health coverage. No single Colombian faces an ex a problem of affordability. 100% of all medical expenditures are covered by the Colombian government, exactly as be the case in France. But, big but, 
Colombia has only about 1.4 beds per 1 million inhabitants, compared to an average of around five for the EU. And most of these beds are located in urban centers. So even though affordability in a middle-income country is no longer the issue, and anybody can go and get treatment, um, they might not even be able to find a hospital. The COVID crisis on top of that made us double click on that statistic. And you look at the amount of high complexity hospitals and ICU beds, the results are even starker. So again, to give you a, a quick example, France at the beginning of COVID, 50, 60 million, 60, 60 plus million inhabitants, around 5,000 ICU beds. Colombia, 50 million inhabitants, so not far off, had about 2,000 ICU beds. So half or almost the same population, um, which sort of shows that affordability, affordability is the first challenge, but then you also need to tackle the issue of uh, access and, of course, the issue of, of uh, quality. Then, um, with regards uh, to the geographical question, as I said, all countries, middle and low income, uh, are, are in need. But uh, from our standpoint, our focus remains Africa, is Africa. Uh, it is a little bit difficult sometimes to find bankable deals in the health sector in sub-Saharan Africa. And the example I just gave um, on, on the pharma side, on there being very few producers and very few being G, uh, WHO, GMP compliant, is crucial because we cannot invest in, in companies that do not um, respect a minimum level of quality standards. And with w, the WHO standards, they, these have very concrete uh, repercussions with it. For example, the, the physical design of a facility, of a pharma facility that you cannot remediate if the facility has been built incorrectly. For example, you have to separate physical production of what we call beta-lactam, so penicillin and antibiotic production from non-beta-lactam production. Why? Because otherwise somebody who's allergic to penicillin might die from an allergic reaction by taking one paracetamol that has been contaminated. And as such, that, that, it, that is why um, those types of productions are not compatible with WHO standards. One of our recent investees, AfriCure, it's an Indian-based company that invests and operates only factories in Africa and in India in, in generics. And we gave them a $10 million loan to construct factories in Ivory Coast, Cameroon, and Ethiopia. But we also had to give them an 800,000 euro technical assistance grant so they could train their staff and they could re conduct regular audits to make sure they were always WHO compliant. Noting that we, during due diligence, had to confirm that their, their existing facilities were already designed to be compatible with WHO. The reason for this is because the, the local regulatory frameworks, unfortunately, uh, the regulatory authorities, sorry, don't have enough experience or capacity to adequately regulate and supervise uh, the pharma sector because that industry basically doesn't exist in countries. 95% is supported. Um, and as such, we sort of have to bridge that gap as the advice to make sure that the end product that a family, mother of a newborn is buying paracetamol won't risk killing her infant because that paracetamol is is botched and contains penicillin and that infant is allergic. So that is, it's not a minor, it's not a minor uh, point for us. Um, having said this, um, AKU is another great example of our, one of our investments in Africa. And we tried to, as best as we can to spread out our limited resources 
you're right, across Turkey, Brazil, Colombia, Mexico, but also Africa, because the need is great uh, all over. And on your second question of um, what the, the how, whether this pattern of investment can change, I can say the short answer is uh, yes. As I mentioned, our, law, our traditional instrument has always been long-term debt, and we were able to do about 30% of that in working capital. Uh, historically, because of COVID, we sort of decided that we are willing to explore now loans that are medium-term working capital loans, 100% working capital, so five to seven years, for pharma distributors, uh, diagnostic centers, labs, and even um, to expand our appetite for working capital lines for hospitals and clinics either to help them uh, move beyond COVID and recover, or simply because certain health sectors have structural needs in terms of uh, working capital. And the last that I wouldn't say is a result of COVID, is actually a result of our uh, internal restructuring. Proparco has now at its disposition concessional lending. We have um, a large envelope from the French government that we can use to subsidize interest rates or provide substantial grants and by i mean substantial i mean from one to five million euro grants for specific projects that our clients for example in the health sector might have that go beyond their operation as we've done with aku for example when it when it concerns a strategy across subsidizing and allowing um the the, the entity to increase access to healthcare um, super, Claudia. Thank you. Um, just mindful that you'll have to uh, departure. So we've had we've had a couple of questions in um, from from the floor, which I'm going to pose firstly to to, to Claudia, and I think uh, one of those in particular also we can probably pick up uh, with Michael now. So um, just on the pattern of of investment, Claudia. I mean, you said you know there's this DFIs. There's a lot of long term, you know, kind of debt out there. A lot of it's kind of senior. And you've ex explained about your flexibility and you know, moving more towards a higher working capital loan component and these grants. I mean, I guess being provocative, just just very quickly, an initial reaction. Um, do you? I mean, you know, some would say you know DFIs are in the business of creating markets, and and what I've heard is that you're saying you know, there isn't a market, for example, in in pharmaceuticals uh, for you in in Africa. What would you What would you say to kind of the on the issue of market creation and perhaps use of different instruments and higher risk kind of tolerance to to kind of help create that do you have just a very quick kind of reaction on that and then i'm going to ask you a question from floor uh yes i think we that's part of our role so when i mentioned that pharma investment that we did that was market creation uh and some of the countries where we're building a factory would it will be the first and only who compliant factory so we were willing to take that risk and this is a small this is an sme so we gave them it's an SME that might have revenues of $20 million and we were willing to lend them 20, uh, sorry, $20 million in revenues. And we were willing to lend them $10 million because we knew well the entrepreneurs. We had done an equity investment prior to that uh, and we've had felt comfortable in their capacity to operate quality assets. But it, 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 it's a very risky investment because they're a small, they're a small uh, company. Uh, and in health, we are also exploring with uh, partners, for example, doing some of the first PPPs in Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, where some governments, such as Ivory Coast, is beginning to launch universal health coverage in steps. So at the beginning, I think it's going to cover 15 or 20% of the population. So, you know, it's, it, 
it's starting and the idea is um, it, it will take time because as you know, PPPs are not uh, something that you structure in the blink of an eye. So it might take us two years to get that project uh, through the door, but that is also market creation. We, will, we would be the first ones um, in, in helping those types of investments that exist while, you know, in Turkey, it's a no brainer, uh, but we were also the first ones in Turkey to do it. So. Okay, so just before we get, I mean, one question from the floor has been, um, and I'll ask Claudia this, and then we'll move on to Michael, and perhaps, Michael, you can also respond on this. And Al-Karim, when you uh, speak um, shortly, uh, if you could also speak to this question, I think you were going to speak on this issue anyway. But So the question is, once the COVID-19 vaccine um, is produced, how best can DFIs respond to resource and finance the equitable flow of treatments to all nations so as to ensure no one is left behind. Claudia, do you have a, some reaction to that, that question, please? And then Michael, if you could react and then we'll move on to your, to your questions. I think it's a hard question uh, when you're operating in the private sector because uh, those purchases will have, and those negotiations will have to happen at the government uh, level. Having said this, we have been approached by, for example, um, vaccine producers in large vaccine producing countries uh, to discuss the possibility of financing uh, facilities that could potentially serve uh, COVID uh, purposes and that we would analyze I think like we'd, we would any other investment um, but I think it's hard because it won't be this will not be driven by private sector and one-off companies it will have to be something concerted uh, by by governments and the type of strategy that each country will need will want to and will need to apply to their respective countries so we will support any client that comes to us with a request and we will analyze it as we would any investment um but it will be more our mother company the afd that will have to work hand in hand with governments to see how they can uh make that happen okay thank you claudia very much i know that you have to depart if we have any um so thank you for your time and, and your insight. Very, very grateful for that. Thank you. Um, there are questions coming through, uh, which is great. Um, I just say to the audience that we will get round to those. We've got time built into the agenda. But for the time being, I'm just going to move on to, to Michael. Uh, Michael, I mean, if you, um, if you can briefly maybe just respond on that question about, about the vaccine. Um, that would just I appreciate that, and then perhaps we can just move on to kind of have a more of a forward look on on DFI investment. Yeah, thanks. And give me feedback if the microphone's not working, please. Um, I so on on access to vaccines that is a challenge for the whole world. I do think that the single best vehicle is the Covax facility that's been built by Gavi, um, which has signed up lots of allocation from various uh, vaccine manufacturers and aims to distribute them equitably, but they've got a public health mindset about approaching that. I think for DFIs though, in the future, there may be a role to play for investing in more diversified production facilities around the world. The world is largely reliant on India and China for producing many of our vaccines. And I think one of the things that 2020 has taught us is that governments and citizens value having local production as well as international production. So I think that might be part of the agenda. In Super. The future. Thank you very much. So you mentioned earlier that it was surprising, if you like, how little DFIs have done in 
this space, um, especially given that low cost of capital. Um, as I said, our research and um, uh, Claudia has just kind of explained a little bit about why we might see a concentration in hard assets, for example, in infrastructure. Um, and some argue that this kind of you know, uh, lack of innovation or conservative investment approach uh, may be down to their kind of current business models, which frustrate, if you like, kind of risk taking and, and, and innovation. What are your views on, on, on that issue? Well, so I'm going to try to be brief because I could talk about it all day. I, I do think that the paper you did earlier in the year was really helpful in much of what I ident identified. I would pick out five things that DFIs should think about doing. One is that DFIs should think about explicitly targeting low-income populations, whether it's through cross-subsidy models like Al-Karim's terrific Nairobi Hospital example or others, but the thinking about what impact we're having on low-income uh, clients. Secondly, I think that there has to be absolutely critical to partner with governments, at least to make investments which are strongly consistent with government priorities for broader healthcare systems. Because only the governments can think about the broader system and how they're going to achieve universal health coverage. Third is to bring a public health mindset to the investment. So, you know, MedAccess, every investment we do, we evaluate its potential impact on morbidity and mortality, as well as what the risk is and the financial return on it. So bringing that public health mindset of evaluating quite rigorously, I think is important. Fourth, be transparent about measurement and transparent about trying to assess what is the impact on healthcare. And fifth, I think this is the most important, is really start to innovate more in terms of the financial products and scope. And there's just two things about that. One is most DFIs provide what is essentially senior debt. And um, with the best will in the world, that's that's only one tool among many. Uh, it's really, you know, really good for infrastructure of various kinds, but it's it's not going to be the right instrument for supporting a lot of the work that has to happen in health delivery. Um, and the second part of that is think about health systems across countries. I mean, just briefly, if you think about the oxygen supply systems across all of Africa, it's a hugely fragmented market without enough local production. And the risk of investing in any single hospital or any single company with oxygen supplies is it's not going to tackle the whole system. So there's need for systemic thinking and about how the DFIs are going to position themselves in the broader ecosystem. That's hard, but it's really worthwhile doing. Thank you very much. Um, so what kind of challenges then um, do you see confronting DFIs in kind of doing more in, in this space? I, I mean, and you've also mentioned kind of a more innovative kind of toolkit uh, to kind of overcome some of these, but perhaps you could just speak to some of the challenges you see and what DFIs can do more of. I mean, like Al-Karim mentioned earlier, I, you know, I think private investment has a really important role to play in health systems, um, but it has different roles to play at different times. I, mean, I, I, I think the healthcare uh, needs are broadly divided into three categories. There's people living on less than $5 a day who inevitably are going to need some kind of social support, probably government support, because it's very difficult to produce a wide range of care, service, goods and services for that population without some government input. So I, I think anybody looking to invest on that area needs to think about, well, how are we going to get that subsidy in? Um, the second tranche is people who are living on roughly $5 a day to $10 a day. I think it's easier serving that population to look for some for some 
commercial return for businesses, um, but it's still going to require a lot of subsidy. I like the kind of hub and spoke model that some hospitals have developed where they're the center of expertise and provide services around that, but it has to be with government. I think, you know, ventures that are trying to be entirely insulated from government schemes or working with government run the risk of, um, of having perverse outcomes uh, unintentionally. And the third tranche, which is people who are above $10 a day, is obviously the place where the returns are highest, where we have, you know, looking at tertiary care, more expensive care, higher margins, easier to invest in those areas um, in terms of financial returns and lower risks, but probably not the highest health impacts. So I think thinking carefully about what is the market for health services and how to, how to how to flex to have different kinds of investment and different kinds of partnerships for reaching different parts of the market. I think that is a really key thing for DFIs to start to develop. If, if you've got a model where you're just looking for good bankable investments and you're looking for what's out there, who are the companies, um, that's not systematic enough. It's not proactive enough. It's not public health focused enough. Really got to think about the broader systems and how to mobilize capital to tackle those challenges. Thank you, Michael. I'm just going to move on to um, Al Karim. So, um, this question actually came up from the floor, so you have an opportunity now, Al Karim. But of, um, obviously, access to health services is a very important issue for your organisation. So, um, addressing this issue about the COVID 19 vaccine when it's available, um, has your organisation kind of discussed how it can be allocated amongst patients? Um, will your cross subsidisation model be applied? And how do you think DFIs can support you in making this vaccine available? Excellent question. Um, so let me start by saying, and I think um, Claudia had mentioned this earlier, whatever we do, we, we have to work in concert with government. We can't act independently and we won't act independently. So whatever we do will be with the support or the blessing of the government. And we support uh, governments and we'll, we will adhere to national guidelines on beneficiary selection uh, that reflect the WHO strategic advisory group of experts values framework for the allocation and prioritization of COVID-19 vaccine. Given that there is going to be a limited amount of vaccines in 2021, is it essential that we all have this conversation that is going on how vaccines will be provided, uh, who they will be provided to in the first instance into the highest priority groups. Now, having said that, we believe the cross-subsidy model uh, will work um, on the assumption that we will be able to uh, get an allocation of vaccines in our major urban centers. We will charge those that can afford to pay for them and we will cross-subsidize and actually give free to those who cannot, that's our intent. We also work in remote parts of the countries in where we operate. So these remote parts of the countries, all governments or government themselves may not pay attention to every part of their uh, population. Not politically correct to say so, but that is the reality. And so we feel that it is our responsibility, again, with the social uh, equity model that we provide those people, either they're in mountainous regions or the most poorest locales where they really don't have a lot of political influence, right? So 
they're not screaming and the politicians aren't trying to appease them for the vote bank. Uh, so we want to work there too. And there we can only do it free of cost. And so the challenge for us is how are you going to cross subsidize hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of individuals who have every right to access a vaccine as anyone else? Uh, we can't generate that sufficient amount of income. Of course, we'll cross subsidize to the extent possible, but this is where we need the DFIs to step up. This cannot be concessionary financing. This cannot be loans. This must be grants. The international community, and we know it's happening through COVAX, we know what is happening through EPI, Gates Foundation, and others, but we do need the international development finance community to say, we're going to allocate X percentage of our resources to help during this crisis. And so it's very, very important um, that that discourse occurs because we're talking about saving lives. So if I talk about Michael's public health perspective, well, this is public health. So who is going to finance these people who have no voice? Who is going to finance a vaccine for these people who have no resources through no fault of their own? Um, so we have given it a lot of thought. It's very complicated. Um, we don't think it's going to be easy, but I'm glad the international community is having a conversation. I am glad that COVAX and others are very seriously deliberating on this matter. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're thankful to have a seat at the table. Super. So just, I mean, reflecting like you said, you know, the imperative is it can't be kind of debt financing. It's going to have to be grant financing. So uh, I'm just wondering, and Michael, you might have a view on this, how, how likely is it kind of that DFIs are going to be able to allocate kind of grant financing for this? Or is it more likely with your DFID hat on likely to come from you know, kind of donors and, and philanthropics. Uh, what, what do you think on that question? Well, look, I mean, there's definitely going to be a need for essentially free money for vaccinating the world. And that's in the interest of every single individual who's entitled to a vaccine, but it's also in the interest of global health security. I guess I disagree with Al-Karim and I don't think DFIs are the best entities for, to provide those large amounts of grants. I think I would be looking to donor agencies and governments simply because when it comes to administering grants, the DFIs don't, don't have the staffing uh, and the connections really to, they're not, they're not built for that. DFIs are built more for capital investment. So I think on the large scale grants, we'd, we'd probably be looking elsewhere, but I completely agree they're going to be needed. And we are facing a year ahead of us in which you know, many donor budgets have been cut because of GNI restrictions um, and because governments are short on cash. It's going to be a really difficult process going forward. Uh, there's not going to be enough money for what is needed. And therefore, questions about how do we act to mobilize more and how do we allocate what there is are going to require the most rigorous ethical thinking. Thank you, Michael. Coming back to you, Al Karim. I mean, I just think um, obviously we've spoken a lot about cross subsidisation and this access issue. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you think that the model is is kind of can be replicated, so it's not necessarily specific to your hospital. Can you just talk a little bit more briefly to why you think it can be replicated, and is there a role for DFIs to support that replication? Uh, so, Sam, we're speaking just about the healthcare sector or other sectors. Sorry, Sam, you're on mute. 
Thank you, Elkarim. So um, it's, the, it's the healthcare sector, so your module hospital kind of access model. Yeah, I mean, why do I think it's replicable? Um, the reality is, and, and is that there is a the population is stratified, right? So um, the people that can't afford to pay, and I'll give you an example. Um, take a country like Pakistan, because we talked about that earlier. There is a percentage of the population that can afford to pay. There isn't a percentage of the population that goes to the UK, that goes to Singapore, that goes to Thailand that goes to the Gulf. So they can't afford to pay. By having them be treated in Pakistan, it, it creates jobs, it keeps money in the economy, it protects foreign currency movements. Um, and, and that income that is generated literally goes to cross-subsidize those that can't afford it. And so we've been doing this year after year since the first year of the hospital opened in the 1980s. And it's a mindset. It's not easy to think, but I can tell you that our patients and the wealthier patients, when they know, oh, well, you know, I'm paying 100, but somebody who can't afford it is paying 10 for the same thing, they actually don't mind. They actually feel good about it saying, look, I'm paying what is fair and reasonable, which by the way, is still much cheaper than if they went outside of the country and I'm helping someone in need. So we have not heard any kind of um, backlash. We haven't heard any complaints. In fact, uh, we get a lot of kudos for trying to help those less fortunate. Uh, the reality is, is that there are a lot more individuals who require uh, support with their healthcare than we're ever gonna be able to provide as one institution or one organization. That is the challenge. So while I've been saying it's replicable, it's doable, um, I think that we have to just recognize that demand for support for those individuals from um, marginalized background, that demand will far exceed our supply to provide it. And that's why we need a series of organizations to try and do this. And we complement what government does. We're not trying to compete with government. That is not at all our intent. But, you know, every government, every city, every country just can't be specialists in one area. Just think about the capital cost investment. Think about the cost of developing sub-sub-specialists it is very difficult. You know, it costs us hundreds of thousands of dollars to develop one subspecialist. The, op uh, the borders in, you know, in, in the UK open up and that investment and that individual is gone. That might have taken you 10, 12 years to develop. Um, so there are challenges um, which are more macro in nature. But if you're looking at it on an entity by entity basis, I think it is doable. And I will also go as far as to say that, look, we, all, we rely on philanthropy as well. We rely on generous donors. But I think donors also get a sense of comfort and contribute to an organization that is thinking about long-term sustainability and their model isn't 100% reliant on philanthropy. Uh, thank you very much. So um, we've had, as I said, a number of questions which have come in from our audience. So I'm going to spend some time uh, addressing those if, if that's okay. So um, I think perhaps, Alcrim, this might be a question for, for you in the first instance. So capital expenditure on equipment is an absolute necessity on the front line of healthcare, as well as capital costs in surgeries, clinics, hospitals, IT systems and beds. 
How can DFIs better balance the tension in these two areas? Uh, that's an excellent question. And my answer would be is you've got to bundle it together. So um, what do I mean by that? Um, you can make an investment. Money is fungible, right? So you can, you can make an investment and DFIs can support uh, capital investments. And you would repay that money over time. But you also have some of your own funds uh, that you can use and can transfer to critical things like IT beds. Alternatively, you can say, my capital program includes critical investment in IT systems, and I'm going to repay it. But rather than 10 years, for example, I'm going to need 15 years. And I can tell you that the DFIs we work with have been uh, very flexible on tenure. Um, as long as they can see reliable and predictable cash flows, and they have confidence in management and in the uh, environment, they will help you and they will look at it in a holistic manner. Michael, would you, do you have any kind of um, response on that question? Well, I, have, I, I like Al Karim's uh, answer. Um, I, I think the thing I would add is that too many private providers are paying above the odds for the equipment that they're getting. Um, governments are more inclined to use pooled procurement or bulk procurement arrangements, and that can bring down the unit price. Uh, the question covered you know, some of the equipment that you need at the front line and in primary care. That, that equipment you need is often available at a much lower unit price if there is some pooling of, of that. And I think we've seen some really good practices that, in fact, Aga Khan um, network has has helped with you know energize pooled procurement among private providers, um, but I think we need to see a lot more. And ideally, ways of pooling procurement across uh, national boundaries when the national need is relatively small, so that you get bigger purchasing power. So I, I think there's a lot to be done on pooled procurement, um, including private providers along with some of the government procurement, and and that's. That's a place where we can see some big savings. Uh, Karim, do you want to respond from your experience on, on the ground? Yeah, uh, uh, Michael's raised an excellent point, and, and thank you for referencing our, our organization. So I actually happen to chair our central procurement group of, you know, across 12 countries, and we are able to have literally tens of millions of dollars of cost avoidance. And imagine if we could do that and we could partner with other private and public sector organizations, what kind of purchasing power that does uh, lead to. Um, you know, we can deal with the complexities of how big corporations are structured, their regional, national offices, the distributors who sometimes don't have an interest in some of these larger strategic relationships because they're very focused on, you know, making their sales and margins. But I do think there's an enormous opportunity for the public sector and the private sector to work together to drive down these unit costs. And by driving down unit costs, what does that do? That brings affordable health care closer to becoming a reality for the tens of millions of people that we're trying to serve in the emerging markets. 
Super, great. Thank you. So another question that we've had from the floor, um, and I think we've touched upon um, probably the conversation just around the, um, what I always call the love affair with senior debt, but there could be good reasons for that. Uh, so what new and innovative models of accessing capital is crucial to reconfiguring the future shape and configuration of the healthcare system itself? Uh, Michael, would you like to offer some reflections on that question, please? It would, I mean, it's a huge question if you think about the whole healthcare system. Um, I do think it is useful to think at a systemic level, what does the whole system need and where is capital needed? I also think, as I said earlier, it's, you know, it's really useful to be able to think of multiple countries at the same time. Um, you know, if, if, you've, if you've got a situation where a series of relatively small adjacent countries have different regulatory frameworks for different products. It's really hard to find economies of scale there. And so part of what we need to do is make sure that we're making the capital available locally. Um, and I think there's you know quite a significant need for working capital um, and the capital available locally for the distributors, the forward and backward integration. Um, so, that's, that is quite different from just senior capital for a, a, mar, a large manufacturing project or a, a large infrastructure project. So that, I think that probably means um, providing a greater range of different types of capital to smaller companies, to distributors, to all of those various actors in the ecosystem. Unless you have something like you know, the, the kinds of networks that Al-Karim sets up where there's a more integrated approach with everyone under a common uh, investment umbrella with a series of contractual relationships that bind it together. That, you know, that, that, that works great, but we do need to think about the broader ecosystem. And I do think there is a place potentially for using grant funding alongside um, concessional capital of the kind that say CDC uses in its catalyst framework and also pushing for universal health coverage. We need to think about, can we use insurance products? The uh, Narayana healthcare uh, initiative that uh, CDC funds for is invested in, for example, they provide, you know, catastrophic healthcare coverage for a dollar a month for people across Karnataka. That is really cost effective. It works very well. It doesn't cover everything but it really provides a high level of cover. So that I think more initiatives like that and thinking outside of many, many DFIs are still in the project finance uh, mindset because that's where they started. And we need to think beyond the single project and think about systems. I think that's a super interesting observation because one of the things I've kind of observed from my work in participating in this discussion is, is I guess that kind of holistic uh, approach to to investment rather than that kind of opportunistic approach to investment and and the need for if you like DFI investment to complement if you like kind of odor investment made perhaps for example in the UK's case you know uh, coordination between CDC and and DFID kind of and how they approach kind of the health sector do you I mean do you see enough coordination in, in that kind of regard I mean we've spoken about kind of a system-wide approach complementarity uh, and also the importance of grants coming up as one would expect, uh, but DFIs don't usually have those at their disposal. That's, for example, uh, donors like DFID. Do you have any reaction on that? Well, look, look, I'm I'm a big fan of combining grants with 
debt and equity um, and also technical assistance in a really smart way. There are risks and many of the DFIs are going to be under pressure to make sure they're, they're not displacing private capital and they want to crowd in private capital rather than driving it out. So you have to be very thoughtful and careful about what is the additionality that's being brought to, to the investment. Um, but I do think there are many cases where a grant for specific services or project development sitting alongside an investment can make can make a world of difference, especially if you're dealing with the lower income sectors. Okay, super. So, um, Alcrim, I'm going to ask you a question, if you don't mind, which has been posed about universal healthcare coverage. Um, so, the question is: Universal healthcare focuses on strengthening of the primary health at the primary healthcare level, which is significant in reducing the load on big hospitals. What are your views on investing at the primary care level? rather than the tertiary care level? Uh, another very good question. Thank you for asking that. So I come from the philosophy that life is not binary. It's not a question of and, do you do this or that? It's a question of and and or. And so I think there's a critical role and a critical need to invest in primary care, just like I think there's a critical need and role to play in tertiary and quaternary care. Uh, so I would, I would respond simply by saying that um, investment in primary care is going to require a different type of investor. So whether it's government, whether it's a private organization, um, it's going to require a different mindset. That is patient capital. That, this is the type of money that you know, wants to invest in 10, 20, 25 years to actually see change come about. Um, so important to recognize that wherever you are in the value change in the industry will require a different type of investor, but it's absolutely vital to invest in primary healthcare. And frankly, that is a job of government, right? I mean, that is a job of government. This is a job of uh, international organizations partnering with government to strengthen that because you know only 5% of the population generally needs to be admitted and the vast majority of people uh, you know could be treated by um, you know a, a nurse practitioner or a lady healthcare worker or someone who is not a medical doctor so absolutely critical uh, to have people in that space and for the international community and countries to support that but not at the expense of uh, you know, secondary care, tertiary care, quaternary care. It, investment is needed throughout the chain. Okay, thank you. So um, I'm mindful that uh, our lunchtime webinar is is uh, soon to end. So I just wanted to ask you both quickly. So Michael, just listening and reflecting on the conversation that we've had today, what would be your two key uh, kind of takeaways from, from this? Perhaps something maybe that you've, you've learned or struck you, and perhaps something, if you like, a, a recommendation uh, to, for DFIs, please. Okay, I think the two takeaways, one of them is that 2020 really has reframed the problem for us. Governments around the world and citizens around the world are very focused on healthcare and the importance of healthcare for our own security and economic prosperity. So it is also a year in which we've seen huge innovation. It's time to build on that. That's the first one. The second one is I think that there is a growing 
potential role for DFIs in this, this space, but they really do need to, I think, follow some of the innovation, the broader approach to public health, the closer collaboration with government, um, the smarter differentiation of how they think about systems. And that is all entirely possible. And I expect it will begin to happen more. Super, thank you. Al-Karim. Um, I think the two takeaways I would, uh, I would share with the audience is number one, uh, not only 2020, but I think there is now recognition and broad acceptance that um, healthcare is a necessary precondition to social and economic development. A nation and its populations are going to find it very difficult uh, to prosper unless they have access to a certain caliber and a certain quality of healthcare. And it's up to each country and each geography to decide where that is. But that is a basic fundamental human right that does require some investment. Otherwise, it's going to be very difficult for a country to emerge. Number two uh, evolves again on Michael's theme on innovation. So if there's a recognition that we need to support healthcare more, and we need to support not only government, but the private sector in helping meet the needs of their growing populations, then what are the tools that should be available? Um, you know, and we have seen great emergence. So Proparco, for example, Michael mentioned CDC, the US Development Finance Corp having a, a, a special emphasis on health in recent times. This is all encouraging. I think what has to happen is greater dialogue between the pools of capital and the people actually running health systems. Because if we talk about universal health care, absolutely no reasonable person in my mind could argue against the value of that. But are we really having a conversation as to what are the practical challenges in delivery if you're a public institution or a private institution? So I think there must be more frank dialogue uh, about the issues. And if we're open and transparent with each other, I am very confident that we'll be able to find collectively new and innovative products and tools to help solve some of the most pressing problems in the world today uh, related to healthcare. Okay, thank you. It's great to finish on that note of, of optimism. Thank you. So, um, so I want to thank uh, the panelists, a very distinguished panel. I've really enjoyed listening to you, to you and learning your perspectives. Um, I just wanted to uh, say to the audience as well, thank you for their questions, and that tomorrow a recording uh, of this webinar will be made available on our website. Um, and also to flag that hopefully you'll be able to join us for our third and final webinar uh, in this event at DFIs and their response in, in the pandemic, which is going to focus on, on liquidity issues on the 19th of November. So without uh, saying anything further from me, I really enjoyed the conversation. It's been a pleasure to have you on the panel and a big thank you to our audience as well. Uh, so thank you. Take care. Bye bye. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes.